Very few people are willing to commit to something and work on it hard over a long period of time. So I'm pretty firmly in the camp, pick one thing and, and go all in. Hello and welcome back to Indie Bites, the podcast where I bring you stories of fellow indie hackers in 15 minutes or less. Today, I'm joined by Jeff Roberts, who's the co-founder of Outsetter, a bootstrapped all-in-one platform to help manage and grow your recurring revenue business. Before Outsetter, Jeff was head of marketing for Buildium, a product that went through the phases of bootstrapping, raising and exiting that was started by current co-founder. Dimitri. Before we get into the episode, you know what time it is. It's sponsor time. And this week, I've got something new for you. Let me set the scene. So you're a product person or a developer who's built your product and you're starting to get a little bit of traction. But because you ship so quickly and efficiently, your design just isn't up to your high standards. Here's where today's sponsor, Figura, comes in. Figura offers the best vetted product designers and contractors to give you a hand. And founder Dennis has given IndieBytes a frankly absurd deal to start you off. If you use the code INDIE199, you get $199 off to start your project completely free. So go show Figura some love. Head to figura.digital, that is F-I-G-U-R-A dot digital, or hit the link in the show notes. Let's get into this episode. Jeff, welcome to the pod. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, James. So Outsetters started late 2016. The one thing that struck me when I was looking is you're not a serial founder. You've not been doing loads of this stuff, like throwing stuff at the wall. Outsetter is like you've been your one big entrepreneurial thing was that seemed quite intentional for you yeah it was quite intentional so outsider was born out of our experience at this previous company buildium we very much scratched our own itch and said you know we were spending a lot of time just integrating the different software tools that were sort of required to run the business and we said every founding team wrestles with these same issues and you're ultimately spending time integrating software rather than building your core product let's go solve that problem and as we were looking at that problem, one of the things was it was sort of a, a durable problem in a durable market. People are always going to need CRM software. People are always going to need billing software. People are always going to need email marketing software, these mm -hmm. categories of software that we wanted to cover. And we said, knowing that this is something that we can commit the next 15 years of our life to, and we just need to give ourselves enough time to build a, a product that that's good enough to, you know, grow the business in the way that we want to. We're, we're now almost six years into our journey. The first two years, we're just building an MVP. What we're mm. building is so big, it's really more like four or five software tools than one. So it took us just two years of head down building to get an MVP into the market. Year three, um, we focus solely on selling to technical founders. And I think we just learned the, the hard way that we were trying to change their predominant behavior. They have the technical skill set to integrate all these tools. So through three years, to be completely honest with you, it was a grind and we didn't have a whole lot to, to show for our effort. Around that time, we were sort of organically discovered by the no-code community. And what we realized pretty quickly was the fully integrated nature of our product provided that much more value to a less technical founder who didn't have the, the same technical skill set to integrate all these tools together. So that was really the first big inflection point in our growth. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying Outsetter helps with speed to market. And you just said it took two years to build your MVP and then another year yep. figuring out that developers at that point might have been the right market. You raised or, or you've gone through a company that has raised funding that mm -hmm. had also bootstrapped. Or why didn't you choose to raise at the outset for Outsetter? It's mostly just personal preference of our founders and, and something I would like really want to hammer home is we have no issue with raising venture capital. We, we did so 
previously, we had a wonderful experience with our investors. But as we reflected on that experience at a previous company, if we're honest with ourselves, we had a lot more fun as a team of 20 than as a team of 200. And we said, if we're going to commit the next 15 years to building something new, we kind of want to do it on our own terms. We want to retain ownership in the business. We want to test out some of these ideas around organizational design that we're interested in. So honestly, it was just kind of, if we're going to do it again, let's try to do it our way to the extent that we can. I was thinking when I was reading through a lot of your blog post, Jeff, it was very much, I am going to make Outsetter work. Dimitri has already had a big success with a company yep. he co-founded. Whereas you see many founders working on things for a long time, seeing if they stick and if they don't get much traction within a few months, they might move on to the next idea. Mm -hmm. Why is it you had so much conviction on this idea? Yeah, a couple, a couple things. One just goes back to the durability in the market. You know, I, I look at things like crypto or just come at some of these other trends that that come up quickly and it's like, you can't make a 15-year bet on something like that because yeah. it's not, it might not be there in 15 years. So aside from that, I, I think something both Dimitri and myself sort of looked at was, was Buildium's own story. Buildium had a $580 million exit, but it took 15 years. And if you look at the company, it, it took them, I think, something around seven years to get to a million dollars in revenue. So they had a long period of time, similar to Outsetta, where... Growth was very slow and steady where it was not this immediate sort of home run, but just sticking with it and saying, this is a durable market. We're just going to make the product better and better. It starts to compound over time. And, and we're seeing the exact same thing with Outsetta today. So I, I think all of the advice around test ideas quickly and sort of pursue the ones that get traction, it's, it's not coming from a bad place. I think particularly mm. if you're like a single founder, but I do think it's become a plague of sorts in the tech industry in the sense that very few people are willing to commit to something and work on it hard over a long period of time. And I think, frankly, you know, most great things aren't, aren't built overnight. And there's probably a lot of people, even founders that do launch and get some success relatively quickly, that are just abandoning good ideas too soon. What's your thoughts on the portfolio of uh, small bets approach this indie founders having loads of projects? I get it as like a risk diversification strategy. I get it in the sense that you're giving yourself more at bats. But even my own personal experience in the early years I was doing consulting, I launched some other projects myself. I can tell you from firsthand experience, even having two, three projects running concurrently, I just felt overwhelmed. I felt like I was not hmm. giving each of them the effort that really was going to be required to make it successful. So I'm, I'm pretty firmly in the camp at this point, at least from a personal preference perspective, pick one thing and, and go all in. I think you, you need to be honest with yourself about the progress that you are or aren't having. But something like Outsetta, I say all the time, like one of the mistakes I think I made was I started to sell too soon. You know, we're in CRM and email marketing and billing. There are countless alternatives out there that are really, really good and when you just have a basic MVP of any of those features, why would somebody use your product? I think too many indie hackers kind of ask, like, why aren't people using my product? And they're yeah. surprised that their MVPs aren't being purchased. But the better question is, like, why would they? And particularly in a competitive market, I think you need to be honest with yourself. We all love these things that are our creations, but is it really better and compelling than what's already out there? Yeah, I like that 
repositioning or reframing the question. Let's talk about marketing and growth. Jeff, this is your background. This is your bread and butter. A lot of founders will go straight in when they start a product thinking, right, I know SEO is free. It just takes me time. Spend my six months ranking for different keywords and content. Yep. You took a slightly different approach to this. Why do you spend time writing blog posts or content that help build your brand instead of focusing on this SEO? When I started writing content, it wasn't an either or scenario, but I had to look at all the things that I had to do as a founder and say, I wanted to write a lot of content. I wanted it to be absolutely the highest quality content that it could be. And I wanted that to sort of or start to build the foundations of our brand rather than really focusing on SEO. And as I mentioned, we're in these super competitive software categories, CRM, email, help desk, billing, et cetera. And if we were to try to target the keywords that are most direct descriptors about Seta across those categories, <laughs> it would be brutally hard. I mean, to rank for a keyword yeah. like CRM, you're going up against Salesforce. To you know, <laughs> rank for like marketing automation, we're going up against HubSpot. Like, yeah. It would make sense, but it would be so much time and effort. I just said it's, it's not going to be a good use of my time. And if you're writing a lot of content specifically focused on keywords, even if you're trying to write really high quality posts, that's not how you build an audience. You build an audience by writing sort of inspired content, in my opinion. And, and then to really get those results in SEO, you need to do a lot of link building. And link building is a super yeah. time consuming sort of mundane thing. And, you know, I've got support tickets to answer and product to build and all these other things going on. So I just said, you know, this is a trade-off. I know that it's something of a missed opportunity not to focus on SEO early on, but if I can really build an audience around the quality of our content and build a meaningful brand, that's an asset that's going to pay off, you know, years into the future. So it's very much just kind of playing the long game. When we first got speaking, you sent me this lovely course that you've made, yeah. which is about how to get your first 500 users. I think that's a great idea. There were Two things I picked up on from the course, from the outline. One thing was your experience with freemium. And I think a lot of yep. founders might be thinking, do I go freemium with my product? And you have a cautionary tale to tell there. This was a huge, just a huge learning from our journey. Mm. So because we sell to bootstrap founders and startups, we came out of the gates with a freemium model. We said, you know, it's most important that this group can start with our product for free because they don't have revenue yet. Honestly, I love that pricing model. I wish I wish it was what we offered today. Um, but we had thousands of customers every single month onboarding to our product and using a free version of our software. And being a big piece of software that is that just does a lot, they were all submitting support tickets and they were all asking for onboarding sessions. Mm. And we were just spending an enormous amount of time and energy you know, supporting customers that weren't paying us anything. And as a small bootstrap team, it became unsustainable. So we said we need to just save our own butts if we're going to build a viable business here. We do need to unfortunately do away with that freemium tier, get people onto a paid product more quickly. Um, and just making that change brought so much sanity back into our business, gave us so much more time and it and it doubled our our growth rate pretty much overnight. So if we were venture funded, if there was $100 million in the bank, I would run out and reintroduce that freemium tier immediately. But that, that's not how we're building this particular business. Well, let's round off about talking about Outsetter as a company. <laughs> this is a very interesting thing you've done with the company. It was a book yeah. called Reinventing Organizations, which you sort of based the structure of Outsetter on, which is this 
flat structure as far as I'm aware. It's like there's no bosses. It's mm-hmm. everyone can sort of take responsibility for decisions. How does that work out? Yeah, so that was a big part of our founding team's interest. We wanted a product idea that we knew we could work on for 15 plus years, and we wanted to prove that we could build a company this way. Honestly, that's like as much of our motivation as anything. Yes, there are no bosses in the organization, but but that's not really what it is about. It is much more about autonomous decision-making and empowering people and letting people contribute to the company in the areas sort of where they're best able. So how, how does some of this self-management play out in, in practice? Because I'm wondering if there is a decision that is yep. made, like an autonomous decision that you make, what if the other co-founders like disagree with it? Yeah, decision-making is is an interesting topic. So I, I think the theme that makes all of this work is ultimately just transparency. Everybody in the company has all of the information. And what that means in practicality is, let's let's use James, for example. James is our design lead. Mm-hmm. If there's some decision around design, James is going to be the best person to make it. And James can make that decision freely because James has all the same information that we have. So if James wanted to go out and you know make a half a million dollar investment, he knows that that would have a massive impact on our company and that would, you know, it would screw up other areas of the business and he can't just go do that on his own. And the final part that that's really important there is everyone at Outseta is an owner in the business and has ownership on the exact same terms as our founders. So in a lot of ways, like everyone that works here is a founder of the business to some Mm -hmm. extent. So that model makes it much more easy to say people are going to act in the best interests of the business because they actually have skin in the game, just like we do as founders. Jeff, has there ever been any points in these last six years with this organization structure where you've thought to yourself, oh gosh, I wish, I wish this was more traditional? I would tell you, honestly, things have gone scarily well for us using this structure. And, And the one thing that comes to mind is there are some things around recruiting in particular that we can't really do with this structure that I, I kind of wish we could. And just as an example, there's a young woman out there who I think is like an up and coming rock star CEO. And I would love to have gone out and tried to recruit her to essentially come in and act as a CEO at Outseta, mm. but we don't really have titles, so we can't really tell her that she's the CEO. Like, So there's some things like that that have, have actually hindered our ability to probably bring some talent on board and, and dangle a, a carrot appropriately to yeah. attract the type of talent that we'd want to. Okay, that's a good example. Jeff, I end every episode on three recommendations, a book, a podcast, and an indie hacker. Reinventing Organizations is just the book that's had probably the biggest impact on how we run our company. And the other one that I'll push is a book called Life Profitability by Addy Pinar. In terms of a podcast, I do, like everybody else, enjoy Tim Ferriss episodes from time to time. And then in Indie Hacker, there is a guy named... I think it's Anthony Castillo from Indie Worldwide. Indie fella? Worldwide. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know him at all. I've never said a word to him, but I have enjoyed his. I think he's at like $1,500 in MRR. And I just like sort of the tone and spirit of his updates. He's building in public. He's very positive. I, I've just enjoyed following his journey. So if you haven't, check him out. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for spending your time with me telling the outset story. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode. All links to everything discussed will be in the show notes. A big thank you to today's sponsor, Figura, the best place to find designers for your product. And finally, if you have a podcast where editing takes up all your time, drop me a message to help you out. I run an editing service called Podpanda to help you get your time back and fire up your production value. That's all from me. See you next week.